it appears that Christians oscillate between two polar opposites in terms of our relation with the world. On one hand, there are those who feel that in our engagement with society, we ought to practice accommodation. We live in the world, and we must live like the world. But there are those who differ, who believe that we ought to abandon the world, we ought to abandon society. It is corrupt and irredeemable, and therefore it is to be abandoned. But when you read the scriptures, you find that even though we are warned not to be a friend of the world, that is, in terms of the world in its principles and practices which are anti-God, the scriptures teach us that we ought to be concerned about this world because God is concerned about society as a whole. And if there's anywhere that is clear that God is concerned about society, it is in the book of Micah. We've been looking at this book for some time and we've come to the third chapter of Micah, a chapter like the preceding which shows that God is engaged and concerned with society. Micah was a small town guy. He came from a little place, a little town called Moresh Gath, some 25 miles outside of Jerusalem. There's nowhere to boast about. You didn't walk around and say, you know, look, take a look at me. I am from Moresh Gath. But God called him a man who is agrarian in his formation to be a spokesman and a prophet to his people. As we have said, Micah lived in a period of great political upheaval, a time when the Assyrian Empire was at its dominance and began to threaten the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel. In 722, the Assyrians would in fact destroy Samaria and take its inhabitants captive to Assyria. And Micah lived in that time of great political upheaval. Jerusalem and Judah were not spared from the Assyrians. We know, for instance, that during the time of Hezekiah, there was an attack against Jerusalem. Sennacherib attacked Jerusalem in 701 BC. But the Assyrians, while they did not conquer Jerusalem, made Judah and Jerusalem, a vassal state, a state under the hegemony of the Assyrians. They were paying tributes to the Assyrians. And when the prophet Micah considered the circumstance, the spiritual state, the political state, he writes this prophecy, a prophecy that is laced with judgment, a prophecy which calls out to Israel and to Judah that God will judge. In fact, the first three chapters contain oracles of judgment 
against Israelite and Judean society. But in, one needs to recognize that these chapters, however, are more than chapters on judgment. They have and provide an etiological function. And by etiology, I mean that these chapters provide a historical explanation for why God had judged and would judge the society. That fundamentally, the reason, the etiology, the historical reason why God will judge, it is precisely because of the coarsening, the corruption of society. In chapters 2 and 3, there is, of course, judgment pronounced against the powerful and the influential who corrupt justice. The wealthy landowners were abusing people. We saw that in chapter 2, 1 to 11. In chapter 3, 1 to 12, we see the prophet turn his gaze away from the rich and powerful to the political and spiritual leaders who themselves were corrupt and involved in injustice. Now, chapter 3, Micah chapter 3 divides into three sections, almost equally divided. There is in verses 1 to 4 an oracle, a warning of judgment against the political leadership or the judicial leadership of Israel. The second division is verses 5 to 8, which is an oracle of judgment against the false prophets. And then the last section, verses 9 to 12, is an oracle of judgment against the rulers, the priests, and the prophets. In fact, when you look at the structure of these sections, verses 1 to 4, 5 to 8, 9 to 12, you will find that they are similar in structure. There's a description of the evil against which the prophet warns, and then there is a revelation of the judgment that will come. And so th th that same formula, that same structure, runs throughout the chapter. But what I want to do is to focus a little bit more on the theology of each section and try to encapsulate in a few statements the message that the word of God would have us consider as we consider this judgment against the political and religious classes in the society. In verses 1 to 4, we ought to conclude from the text that the God to whom we must give account is just and expect his people to deal justly with one another. If we take nothing away from these first four verses, they establish the reality that the God to whom all must give account is a just God and expect his people to deal justly with one another. You notice how the prophet begins. And I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. 
Is it not for you to know justice? This kind of opening, here now, is repeated in verse 9. And that's a way of linking and keeping the argument together. This theme of judgment is kept together by these repetitions. Here now, in verse 1 and in verse 9, he begins with an appeal to the political class, to the leaders, to hear the word of God. And he addresses this devastating rhetorical question to the leaders. He says to them, should you not know justice? And of course, the answer that he anticipates is indeed yes. They should know mispat. They should know justice. They should know what is right. You see, the term mispa can, in fact, mean different things. But in this context, it means that which is right, that which is straight, that which accords with divine norm. Should you not know justice? Should you not know that which is consonant with the revealed moral will of God? And you see, these who are judges in Israel ought to know. When Moses was called to lead Israel, at some point the work was too great for him. So God instructed him through someone who we wouldn't expect, but God instructed him through his father-in-law to be wiser. Not to try to take on all of the cases in Israel and judge, but to appoint men, godly men, as judges. And it is Moses who appointed judges in Israel. He reserved the more difficult cases for himself. And you will find that, that, that same judicial system up to the time of the kings, like David and Solomon. David was a chief judge in Israel. He, held, he handled the most difficult cases. Solomon handled... Some of the most difficult cases. Remember the story of the, the woman or the two women who came and both of them were fighting over this child. One said, you know, my child died and, and uh, you know, my child was alive. You know, this other woman, her child died and she took my child at night and came to Solomon and said, what should we do? And Solomon looked and said, you know what, okay, get me a sword. I'm going to divide it. You can take half. You can take half of the child. And the real mother <laughs> couldn't allow it to happen. She says, no, 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 let her, have, let her have the child. And Solomon said, you're the real mother. Here's the child. Well, this is a hard case for him to handle. So you see, the judges were the ones who dealt with the simpler cases, but the, the king, the, the, the chief leader, dealt with the most difficult cases. And justice was established and demanded in Israel because the God who established Israel revealed himself to be a God of justice, who himself does what is right. In fact, it was in Genesis that Abraham could observe the Lord of the earth will do right. This is a God who, he says, shows no partiality. A God, Moses declares, who is righteous in all his ways and judgments. A God who acquits the righteous and condemns the guilty. In fact, later on in the book of Isaiah, we are told about the God, tell and bring forth your case. Let them take counsel together who has declared this from ancient times, who has told it to you from that time. Have I not, am I, have I not the Lord? 
and there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior. Uh, there is none beside me. In Isaiah 45, 21, God is revealed as a God of justice who does what is right. Not only is God just, but God reveals what just conduct looks like. And that's why he revealed to them the Ten Commandments. The first four referred to their activity and obligation to God. But the second part of the law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, related to their actions towards one another, their fellow man. But Moses not only gave them the Ten Commandments, he gave them the Book of Covenant in chapter 20 of Exodus to chapter 23, verse 33. He, here, these are case laws where in particular instances are given to them of how they handle particular problems. So you will find in this section of the law where it's a, if a man does so and so, this is what you should do. We call this casuistic law, case law, based on individual particular circumstances. And you will find in this section that there were rules and regulations given about how one should treat one's servant, about violence against somebody, about what you should do with someone's property, what should you do with an animal that, for example, you know to be rebellious and difficult and violent and he kills somebody else. All of these are encoded in the law. See, God had given to them a blueprint of how they are to live in relation to God and how they are to live in relation to one another. And it was a task of the judges in Israel to study the law. That was their job. And to apply each case, to apply to each case the scriptures. But here... These judges were flouting the law of God. So he asked the question, is it not for you to know justice? These were judges who had turned away from the right path and were dealing unjustly with the people of God. And he, tra he traces the injustice that was prevalent in, in Judah to a condition of the heart. That, that it is not that the judges in Israel lack the intellectual ability to apply justice. Their problem was a particular spiritual one. He says, you who hate good and love evil. Why was justice not practiced? Because fundamentally these judges had no taste for that which was good. They hated the good, and they loved the evil. Their moral compass was now inverse. They delighted in evil and hated the good. And because their moral compass was askew, they began to treat people callously. And the language that is used here of the treatment, the unjust treatment, is graphic. In fact, he accuses them, or he compares their injustice to cannibalism. They cannibalized people. Now, of course, he talks about how they eat people, and, and, and it's not, he doesn't follow the normal order that a cannibal should eat somebody. He goes back and forth, and it's because the text is 
driven by pathos, by strong emotion. But he says this. You who hate evil and hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people. And then he goes back, he says, they flay their skins from them, they break their bones and chop them up in pieces like meat from the pot, for the pot and like flesh in the cauldron. He describes their injustice as acute victimization tantamount to cannibalizing people. They cannibalize the rights of people. They eat them up, they swallow them up in injustice. They sacrifice them to their own advantage and for their own profit. And as a result of this, the Lord responds that he will judge. What is the judgment that he will bring? In verse 4, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. Just like the poor man who has been dealt evilly and who has not been treated with justice cry to the judges for relief. These whom God will judge will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. Just like they did not hear the cry of the poor for justice, the Lord will not hear their cry for relief. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. He will hide his face. He will turn his favor away. The face of God as revealed in the scriptures refer to the favor of God. The Lord causes face to shine upon you. Well, it's referring to the favor of God, the goodness of God. And when God turns his face away, it means he turns his favor away and brings wrath. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 27 could say, Do not turn your servant away in anger. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. If God turns his face away from us, it means that we are under his anger. And so God promises and threatens that these who are unjust will also face the justice of God. He will turn his face from them. He will hide himself from them because of their evil. You see, God is by nature just and demands that we deal justly, rightly, fairly, equitably with one another. But there is a second message that the passage would have us consider. See, not only is God ultimately just in nature and demands that we deal justly with one another, the passage reminds us that God's messengers must not serve him for gain or pander to the tastes of men, but to speak the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here is a central fact, a central truth in the passage, that God's servants, must never serve him for gain or pander to the taste of men, but speak truth in the power of the Spirit. After the prophet's assault upon the political class, the leaders, he turns his attention to his compatriots, to his comrades, to the fellow prophets in verses 5 and following. 
and he calls out the prophets. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they true with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divinization. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. What, what was wrong with these prophets? Well, you look at these prophets, you would think, well, they aren't so bad. I mean, they are not calling people to follow Baal or some foreign god. They're not saying God does not exist. Let us abandon the worship of Yahweh. What's so bad about them? What are they doing that's so wrong? Well, essentially, they have deviated from the word of God and were misleading the people of God. The text makes that clear. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray. They led them astray. And there are three things that the prophet says, at least Walkie tells us about them. First of all, we know something about their message. Secondly, the prophet says something about their motives. And thirdly, about their manner. The message that leads people astray, the motives that did so, and the manner in which they did. Well, what did they do? They led people astray by tailoring their message to suit their audiences. They were crying, peace, peace, shalom, shalom. In other words, they were preaching a gospel of prosperity, a gospel of wealth, a gospel of freedom from trouble. They were saying, peace, peace. That's the message. Its intent was to put people at ease, to make people happy and comfortable. They were scratching people where they itched. That's the message, peace, peace. Everything is fine. God is happy with you. You are happy with God. Everything is going to be well. We see something of their motives. In verse 5, the prophet says that they chant peace while they chew with their teeth. It's, one writer says, a rather crass description. But what it means is that they were, they were, Prophesying peace, peace for gain. In other words, they were, they were prophesying peace, peace that they could chew with their teeth. That is, that they could get things, that they could be given money, that they could be given wealth, that they could buy and eat and enjoy life. You see, what had happened here was that they were prophesying peace, peace, so that they would gain wealth, that they might be able to enjoy a life of luxury. That's what it means when he says they chew with their teeth. They had a lot of food to eat. They had a lot of meat, meat to eat because they were preaching a message that people liked and people were shelling out money. They were telling everybody, look, it's going to be okay with you. 
God is going to come true for you. God is going to do what you want of him to do. You're going to be happy. You're going to be prosperous. And so they had abundance. They were chewing with their teeth. Their motive was material gain. We see something of the manner. Because you notice right after this in verse 5. That he says. They prepare war against him who put nothing in their mouths. Meaning those who did not support them. Those who did not buy into the argument that if we give you money, you will prophesy in a manner that pleases us. Those who looked at them and said, you know, something is wrong. You can't have everybody going to be healthy and wealthy and happy. That message does not sound like it comes from God. I'm not going to give you any money. What do they do? They prepare war against them because they put nothing in their mouth. They give them no money. They do not encourage them materially. So you see the manner is hostile. Once again, we see that God will judge. And here, the judgment that God will bring against these false prophets is that he will remove from them revelation. That those who refuse to speak the truth, they will lose spiritual vision. The sun, he says, will set on them. They will be in darkness. The thing that they crave for the most, to hear from God, they will no longer hear from God. The sun shall go down on the prophet, they will be in darkness. And the day shall be dark for them. They will seek visions and hear nothing from God. They will be kept in darkness by God. You see, when men refuse to speak the truth of God's word, they are going to lose spiritual vision. And the more we give ourselves to untruth, the more we lose true spiritual vision. Over against these, we have in verse 8, the prophet who speaks. Uh, over against these who are preaching and teaching for money, and whom God promises to remove his revelation from before them, he says, but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. That the antidote to false teaching, to the mercenary approach to serving God for gain, is to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit. That one might be empowered to speak justice, to declare the sins and transgressions of God's people. You see, he prophesies that he does possess a spirit. And his ministry in comparison to those false prophets, is faithful because he carries out his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Well, my beloved friends, there is another truth that the text would have us reflect upon. Not only is God a just God and demands that we deal justly with one another, not only does he tell us that God's messengers must speak God's truth and do so by 
God's Holy Spirit without pandering to the taste of men. We see in this third section, verses 9 to 12, that it is futile to claim the comfort and security of God without a corresponding life of obedience. Verses 9 to 12 function somewhat as a summary. Because now in these verses he addresses the totality of Israel's leaders. Both the political and the religious leaders together. He says now hear this. You see the repetition of here as we have it in verse 1. Now hear this. You heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Who abhor justice. Who hate justice. And pervert all equity. Who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a pay. It's the first time you see in the text that he introduces the category of priest. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. What he does is that he lists the evil doings of the various groups. He says of the leaders and particularly the judges that they hate justice and pervert its course. Jerusalem that was to be built upon the word of God, they were building it up with bloodshed and injustice. The judges in verse 11 are those who are taking bribe. If you had enough money, you could buy justice. The judges were for sale. Justice was on the auction block. Micah says that the priests were teaching for money. And he's not saying that the Old Testament priests or the New Testament servants of God are not to be paid, but rather that the motivation for service was never to be for monetary gain. They were serving like mercenaries, seeking money. And the prophets were like the priests. They prophesied so that people would grease their palms. They had a message that was accommodating, that people enjoyed and could support monetarily. And while they were doing evil, we see the remarkable temerity of this group that at the same time they were claiming to trust in God and claiming to have God's presence and security with them. They were saying, is not Yahweh in our midst? Surely no evil shall come upon us. Why were they, say, why were they so encouraged that even doing evil they were secure? Well, they had the temple in Jerusalem. And where did God dwell in Israel? God dwelt in the temple. And what they were saying in effect it doesn't really matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live. Because we have the temple. And God will never abandon his temple. After all, it is his temple. And because we have God's temple in our midst, we are secure. Our enemies will not overrun us. Or they may overrun the northern kingdoms. But what do they have? They have pagan temples. Worshipping on the high hills, but we have the true temple. It's God's temple. 
They thought that they were secure because they had a temple in their midst. They could deal unjustly. They could sell their message. They could tailor it to suit their audience. And they would never be troubled. They were secure. And so we have verse 12, which comes as a shock. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins. And the mountain of the temple like the wooded hills of the forest. Jerusalem, he says, will come to ruin. It will be destroyed. It is futile to claim the comfort of God's presence and security without a corresponding life of obedience. I only have a few observations. First, let me state that God is concerned about justice. He's concerned about justice in its broadest extent in our world. You see, for for society to function properly, there must be a standard of right and wrong. And the history of Judeo-Christian societies that we have been founded upon Scripture. Our standard of justice has come down to us from Scripture. But we live in a world where true justice can hardly be found. It's like finding, a, finding hen's teeth. The rich grow wealthier and wealthier. We, we live in a world, you know, where multinational corporations have difficulty when you talk about raising the minimum wage. He said, well, you know, workers need 50 cents more, and they, they, they can't believe that people could be so unfair asking for 50 cents. And yet they will give executives and CEOs millions and millions of dollars in bonuses, but can't raise the minimum wage, can't give 25 cents or 50 cents because it's too much. We see injustice in the criminal justice system, that if you have enough clout, enough money, and enough influence, and enough smarts to get a slick lawyer, you can get off almost anything. We see injustice that when people commit the most heinous of crimes, like murder, they simply get a pat on the wrist. On the international scene, you look at places like Aleppo, where people simply desiring freedom are under bombardment day and night. And those who have power to intervene do not because it's not in their interest to do so. There's injustice in our world. And God takes note of it. And God will do something about it. Will the God of heaven, will he not do right? The psalmist says, he shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall administer judgment for the people in uprightness. 
God will set matters straight. He will bring true justice in a world of injustice. But it ought to be noted further that God is not merely concerned about justice in the world. God is concerned about justice amongst his people. That you and I, we must practice what is just and right. We must deal fairly with one another, not only with the goods of others, but with their persons and their characters and their reputations. It's interesting, you know, when, when other Christians annoy us or we don't get on well with them, it's very easy for us to tear them down, to paint them as monsters, greater monsters than ourselves. Show very little regard for their character, their reputation. But we must deal justly. We must place the interest of others before us. We must alleviate the suffering of the poor in our midst. God has been good to us. We ought not to say to those in need, you know, be warm, be filled when they are hungry and they are naked. But it will justice. And when we are wronged, we are not to retaliate. Our Lord Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. We must not take justice in our own hands. We must leave that to God. To vengeance is the Lord. He says, I will repay. God is concerned about justice as it is practiced in the church. And you and I, you know, we can, we can leave injustice committed against us to God. Why? Because God has done us the greatest favor. He has spared us from his justice. He has sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to satisfy his justice. We, we were under the justice of God. We had a, a death sentence hanging over our heads. The soul that sin it shall die. Amen. And yet God in his mercy sent the Lord Jesus. And Peter puts it in these words. He says Christ also suffered once for sin. The just for the unjust. <laughs> Listen friends. Men may beat us up in this world. They may do us evil. But thanks be to God, we have been speared from the justice of God. Why? Because we have one who is just. He became the unjust. He took our sins and took our punishment. And we have been delivered from a great death. It doesn't matter what men do to us so long as we have been speared from that awful place of hell. Thanks be to God that we have in Jesus Christ a deliverer who delivers us from eternal death because he took the wrath and anger of God. We can leave justice in the hands of our Savior because he has paid for our sins. But we can leave justice in his hands because he's coming again to establish justice on the earth. Look at how Isaiah says it in chapter 42 of Isaiah. Verses 1 to 4. Behold my servant. 
whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. It is only in this world that we experience injustice. That when Jesus comes, he will bring true justice. That from shore to shore, from sea to sea, the entire world will be a world ruled by Christ and his justice will reign. There will be no injustice. There will be no charges against each other for being unfair. You see, justice will reign because the just judge has come. This passage not only tells us that God is concerned about justice and justice among his people. You and I must do God's work for God's glory by God's spirit. Micah warns us, those of us who are pastors and preachers, to examine our motives. Why do we preach the word of God? Why do we (laughs) proclaim scripture? Do we do it because we want to be rich? Do we do it because we want the applause and the fame that sometimes comes with the gospel ministry? These Priests and prophets in Judah were teaching and prophesying for money. And do you know that not much has changed? Still happens today. Too many think of the ministry as a place of advancing their careers and making money. We always find gullible people who will always give money for any kind of foolish reason. Promise to send you a green cloth that I have touched and what you send money. You wonder how people can be so foolish, so gullible. You see, things have not really changed. We need to examine our hearts and motives. We must be careful that when we speak, we say, Thus says the Lord, and let the chips fall where they may. We must not tailor the word. We must not tone it down, but we must declare this is what God has said. We must preach God's word. Paul says, do I please men or God? If any man preaches another gospel than that which I have received and given to you, let him be anathema. You and I must preach the truth of God's word regardless of who hears or who rejects it. We must not preach that which is palatable. And that which is comfortable, we must preach that which is truth. And we must do it not for our advancement, but for the glory of God. That we may decrease and Christ may increase. But this has ramification for all of us. Because it is not only those of us who are pastors and preachers, who are to examine our motives, but all of us who do God's work, must ask the question, why do we serve? Do we serve because we want the applause of the world? Because we want to be feted and feasted by others? 
Or is it because we want to promote the glory of God? We must serve because we are concerned that God be glorified. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And ministry and service in all of its capacities must be that God may be magnified in our midst. That men may see him and love him and serve him. We must do it not for self, but for God's glory. And more importantly, the service we render to God must be rendered through the Spirit. Micah says, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. I want to suggest to you that what the church needs to succeed is not more committees, though committees are often very necessary. We don't even need more brilliant people. The church does not even need more theologians and scholars to succeed. What it needs are spirit-filled men and women. But one of the greatest reasons why we do not advance is because we seek to advance in our own strength, depending upon our own abilities. But if we are to do God's work in God's way, we must have the Spirit of God. There can be no effective service without the Spirit of God. And we need to be a people who are crying out to oh God, Oh, Holy Spirit, empower me and enable me. Give me boldness and power to serve. We must be a people on our knees and on our faces before God. I need a strength that is not my own, a strength that comes from heaven. If we are going to make a dent in our age, if we are going to see the foundation of evil shaken, we need supernatural power. You cannot fight a spiritual battle with human power. You cannot see spiritual success using the arm of flesh. We need help from God. And Micah stood in his day a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, may we cry to God more of your spirit. That whether you sing or sweep the floor or preach or teach Sunday school, that whatever you do, you do it only in the power of the Spirit. And finally, my friends, let us know that True comfort and true security in the presence of God can only be known through a life of obedience. There the people were in Michael's day, perverting justice, preaching for money, but saying, God is here. We are secure. Only to find that later on, Jerusalem too was destroyed. In 586 BC. Is the true security and true comfort in God cannot be divorced from a life of holiness. There is no blessing without obedience. There is no happiness without holiness. And if you are to know the comfort and the joy of God, you must do God's work in God's way. You must live according to God's will. You must seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. And then you will know the bounty of God, the blessing of God. 
then you will be safe. Then you will also know that one day you'll be called to this Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an immeasurable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, to God the judge of all, and the spirit of just men made perfect. For God's sake, amen.